Hey, just a heads up. This is part three and the final installment in the series on Captain Jack and the Modoc War. If you haven't already listened to parts one and two, you may want to do so before continuing. Links in the show notes. Now for a short recap just to get things started. November 29, 1872. 40 U.S. troops and a handful of civilians arrive at Captain Jack's camp on the Lost River in an attempt to coerce the band back to the Klamath Reservation. Things get heated and a battle breaks out, resulting in the death of one, possibly two, of the civilians and seven wounded U.S. soldiers. One Modoc woman and her infant child are killed in the exchange as the band flees downriver to the safety of the lava beds, a maze of tunnels, caves, and natural trenches. On the way there, Hooker Jim and a small group of warriors go on a killing spree, murdering over a dozen settlers around Thule Lake, further escalating matters. Meanwhile, another band of Modoc who were not involved in the battle there at Lost River attempt to seek refuge at the reservation. They narrowly escape a lynching along the way, causing them to abandon their plans and join Captain Jack, Hooker Jim, and the rest down at the lava beds in what soon becomes known as Jack's Stronghold. The Modoc, now about 150 strong, only one-third of which are fighting-aged men, hunker down as the U.S. Army arrives. Finally, on January 17, 1873, the soldiers make their move, launching a felled assault that saw more than a few soldiers killed without so much as one Modoc warrior wounded. What followed was a nearly three-month-long siege as peace talks were conducted. The U.S. government wanted an unconditional surrender and to hold those who slaughtered all them settlers back in November accountable. And to Captain Jack's credit, he does want to surrender at this point. Unfortunately, he's in the minority. The Modoc within the stronghold become more and more under the control of medicine man curly-headed doctor with each passing day. And hotheads like Hooker Jim and his warriors become more influential. These instigators threaten, bully, and shame Jack, ultimately pressuring him to agree to their plans of treachery. As such, on January 11, 1873, Good Friday, during what's meant to be a peace talk, Jack murders U.S. General Edward Canby. Also murdered is the Reverend Eleazar Thomas. They're both scalped and stripped of their clothing. Interpreter Frank Riddle and Peace Commissioner L.S. Dyer are able to escape as former Superintendent of Indian Affairs Alfred Meacham is shot multiple times and left for dead. A Modoc woman named Toby coming to his aid and scaring the warriors away. Which brings us to where we left off on the previous episode. The Modoc War would only last two more months, and those two months would see a whole hell of a lot of killing. So without further ado, let's dive into the third and final installment of Captain Jack and the Modoc War. Strap in, because things are about to get bloody. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Easter weekend of 1873 there in Jack's stronghold was a bit unconventional, to say the least. There were no egg hunts or Easter bonnets, no football or turkey dinners or drunk uncles passed out on the couch. But there was dancing, a whole lot of dancing. General Canby, along with the Reverend Thomas and a still barely alive Meacham, had all been stripped of their clothing before the killers made their hasty getaway. Once back in the safety of the stronghold, Bogus and Boston Charlie divvied up Thomas's duds as Shack Nasty Jim, John Sconchin, and Hooker Jim laid claim to those of Meacham. As for Jack, he demanded and received General Canby's now blood-stained uniform, grudgingly parting with the officer's pocket watch, which went to Ellen's man George. 
The general scalp was then added to curly-headed doctor's medicine pole, and the festivities began, dancing and celebrating that would last for the next three nights. And man, I gotta wonder if they really grasped the situation at hand. Did the Modoc not truly understand the might of the U.S. military? I tend to think that they did not. I mean, how could they? We're talking a small tribe of hunter-gatherers, essentially a Stone Age people accustomed to tribal skirmishes with rival bands. They had undergone a rapid change in the past 40, 50 years for sure, but they still had no clear understanding of prolonged military campaigns of the type Europeans or Americans waged. And I don't mean that disparagingly. They just had no way of knowing. I mean, there's a very good chance many of these Modoc believed that the military would now, following the death of Canby, simply cut their losses and go back home. And of course, you had curly-headed doctor and his big medicine, which was still holding strong in their view. After all, not a single Modoc had yet been killed, nor had any of the soldiers crossed into the stronghold. So I don't think that these celebrations were the Modoc just blindly ignoring reality. In their worldview, not only were they ahead, but they had a shot at winning the whole damn thing. And hell, let's face it, before the treachery at the peace tent, they did have a bit of wiggle room. Somebody was going to have to pay the price for all those settlers killed back in November. That much was certain. But I do think that had the Modoc surrendered instead of killing Canby, things would have turned out much differently. At least for Captain Jack, whose fate we'll discuss here in a little bit. Meanwhile, the military response to the killings at the peace tent was excruciatingly slow, mostly due to Colonel Alvin Gillum. Just minutes before Canby and the Reverend were murdered, there was a minor skirmish nearby at Major E.C. Mason's hospital camp to the east of Jack's stronghold. A couple of Modocs showed up under a white flag and were granted an audience with a pair of lieutenants. When the officers turned their backs, one of the warriors scooped up a rifle he had hidden in the grass and opened up fire killing Lieutenant Sherwood. A Captain Adams manning a nearby signal camp hears these shots and scribbles down a note for Colonel Gillum, the senior officer under Canby. After all, this was cause for alarm. If the Modoc were brazen enough to launch an attack on the hospital, then there's a damn good chance that the peace commissioners, General Canby included, were in grave danger. Upon receiving this note, Colonel Gillum begins to write one of his own, addressed to the general and warning him of said danger. And literally, as Gillum is putting pen to paper, more shots are heard in the distance. This, of course, was the massacre of Canby and Thomas that we discussed at the end of the last episode. Hearing these shots, Gillum quickly springs into action, mobilizing a quick reaction force that he personally leads to come to the aid of the peace commissioners, reportedly running ahead and even snapping off a few shots at Captain Jack as he and the others fled the scene of the crime. Emboldened and with the enemy in sight, Colonel Gillum goes into a full-on sprint, quickly overcoming the Warriors and taking down both Jack and Hooker Jim with one single flying roundhouse kick to their heads. And no, that absolutely did not happen. In all actuality, Gillum froze. There was mass confusion there in the army camp, officers and NCOs hollering and mustering up their men, but without any sort of clear directive. Nobody knew what to do and no orders were given. In the colonel's defense, he was allegedly sick with some kind of illness at this time. What type, I'm not sure, but he would actually pass away just a year and a half later, at 45 years old. Like I said, I don't know what type of sickness this was, or if the condition that ultimately killed him was the same that caused him to become immobilized there at a very crucial moment. Nonetheless, he hesitated a little too long. Finally, a major Biddle steps in. He takes Gillum into a tent and then reemerges without him taking control and ordering a contingent of troops to the peace tent 
their mission to either rescue General Canby and the others or avenge their deaths. As the soldiers marched at double time towards the sound of gunfire, they're passed by Dyer and Frank Riddle, both of them terrified and running for their lives. Damn, that's got to be creepy. Just imagine that, being a young private, rushing into the unknown as horrified people are running past you for safety, full speed. I imagine it would have a very puckering effect. Within half an hour, the rescue party finds the bodies of Canby and Thomas, minus their clothing and scalp, and Meacham, still alive but barely. He's also stripped down to his long johns and partially scalped. The Modoc lady slash interpreter, Toby Riddle, trying her best to doctor his wounds. A military surgeon attached to the rescue party takes over, forcing some brandy down Meacham's gullet, which was a standard practice in those days to treat shock. Now at this point, to go any further would just be begging for trouble. The soldiers retrieved the dead and Meacham and returned to camp, where they would spend the weekend formulating their next move as the Modoc celebrated. This would prove to be a major turning point in the war, at least as far as public opinion was concerned. No longer were the good people of Wairika, California sympathetic with Captain Jack and his band. As General Canby's body was laid in state, effigies were burned in the streets. Peace was no longer an option, there would be no more negotiations, and even President Grant was calling for the literal extermination of the Modoc. And how best to deal with the Modoc forded up there in the lava beds was hotly debated. Poison gas was considered, believe it or not, as was strategically placing snipers among the lava rocks just to systematically take the Modoc out at a safe distance. Dogs were suggested, send in the hounds! And so was body armor. In the end, it was to be a relatively simple affair. No fancy tricks, no elaborate plots, not even any dramatic charges, like in the first battle of the stronghold. Just a steady, slow advance of soldiers. More meat for the grinder. Troops slowly eking their way across a lava rock hellscape, moving from cover to cover and praying that the next bullet don't find them. And I do mean slowly. The assault began early in the morning on April 15th just four days after Canby's assassination. And seeing what was happening, Captain Jack had sent eight Modoc warriors outside of the stronghold as an advance guard. Lying concealed among the rocks, these men were to delay the soldiers as much as possible, a tactic that proved to be successful, as it would take 400 soldiers nearly six hours to move just half a mile. Finally, at the cost of three soldiers killed and six wounded, the troops were a thousand yards away from the stronghold nearly within sight of General Canby's scout flying from that medicine pole. And unlike the first battle of the stronghold, the soldiers would not retreat back come nightfall. Once the sun began to set, orders came down for them to stop where they were and make camp. These poor fighting men had no choice but to spend the sleepless night laying on the jagged rocks, building whatever sort of breastworks they could all around them. The following day, the shelling began, without the artillery doing much initial damage. The Modoc were just too well dug in, and the women and children were now taking shelter in caves, with rocks piled up in front to stop any stray rounds or ricochets. And once again, the soldiers moved slowly. They were being cautious, and I don't blame them. Not a whole lot of ground was taken on the second day, but what the soldiers did take was worth its weight in blood, as they managed to cross curly-headed doctor's medicine rope, the one that was supposed to keep the whites out. This was a big-time morale killer for the Modoc. And almost as if to hammer home that point, that evening they suffered their first casualty. A cannonball landed within the stronghold without exploding. 
A curious Modoc, at least one source I found claimed that it was a child, but I could not verify that, picked up the cannonball and attempted to remove the detonator with their teeth. And it went off. Another shell made a direct hit into the council fire, sending embers flying everywhere and scaring the shit out of everybody. And while no one was hurt, this would completely shatter what remained of the doctor's medicine. For the first time in a long time, Captain Jack once again retained leadership of the remaining Modoc. They would make a few half-hearted attacks on the soldiers during the dead of night, but they wouldn't risk their numbers by making a full-on assault. They weren't suicidal or stupid, so instead they kind of hung back and concentrated their efforts at taunting the exhausted soldiers, calling out insults, likely questioning the purity of their mothers and sisters. Now, even though the stronghold wasn't wholly surrounded, as was the initial plan, the military had succeeded in cutting off the water supply of the Modoc. Once again, another huge victory. You know, you can arguably go a couple of weeks without food, but a few days without water can be downright deadly. And just one day without would make life miserable, especially for the women and children, the babies. And yes, at least one baby was born in the stronghold during this siege. Later that night, Captain Jack made a decision and began the evacuation, leaving a small rear guard to keep the soldiers distracted. The bulk of the Modoc then escaped from a low depression, leading to a lava flow, now known as Sconchin Flow. As this retreat was being undertaken, Ellen's man George led a handful of warriors to Colonel Gillum's camp, which was sparsely guarded, with most of the soldiers gone in the main assault. These Modoc attempted to goad what was left out to fight, but luckily for the troops, they didn't fall for it. The Teamster and a couple of reporters wouldn't be so lucky the following day. Around noon, it was their great misfortune to come upon Hooker Jim. The Teamster, a 19-year-old named Hoovy, was shot and killed. His body stripped and mutilated as the two newspapermen ran for their dear lives. And it wasn't until that next day, around 11 a.m., that the soldiers discovered that Jack's stronghold was now empty save for one elderly and wounded man and possibly an elderly lady, who were both unceremoniously put out of their misery. The second battle of the stronghold was over. One Modoc, possibly a child, and one, if not two, elderly members of the tribe were dead. Seven U.S. servicemen were dead as well, with over a dozen wounded. I think accurate numbers of casualties during this entire war are very hard to come by, so please do keep that in mind. Although the Modoc were now rooted and on the move, they weren't defeated. Not yet. There's a strong case to be made that they were now more deadly than ever. At least there in the stronghold, they weren't going anywhere. They were more or less contained. Now on the loose, who knows where the hell they are or what they're going to get up to. How many more hapless souls like that young teamster would be killed? How many homesteaders would wake up with their throats cut? And what's more, they were desperate. Remember, this wasn't just 50 warriors. They had their families. Hell, Captain Jack had a wife, two of them, actually, and at least one daughter. Most of the other warriors had women and children as well. The main bulk of these Modoc now on the run, at least a hundred of them, were non-combatants. And a desperate man fighting for his family's survival will just fight harder. But don't take my word for it. Just ask the troops under Captain Evan Thomas of the 12th U.S. Infantry. He and his men, numbering 70 strong, left camp on April 26th to conduct a reconnaissance, just nine days after the Modoc retreated from the stronghold. The idea was that the remaining warriors were hunkered down in a lava flow nearby, and Captain Thomas was scouting out a good spot to place some artillery pieces. You know, blow them out of the rocks. And I don't know what happened. I don't know if Thomas felt like there was strength in numbers, or 
If he didn't think the Modoc were in his immediate vicinity at that particular time or what. But he stopped for lunch, he and his men. Called a halt at the worst possible place you can imagine. A small area at the foot of what's now called Sand Butte, a low spot surrounded on three sides by bluffs and ridges. The sort of place where, oh, I don't know, a group of expert guerrilla fighters might just choose to launch a perfect ambush. Sure enough, the Modoc warriors knew precisely where the soldiers were. Hell, they'd been flanking them for miles. And when the troopers called their noonday halt, the Modoc went into position up on them ridges. Not only were the soldiers 100% exposed and hemmed inside kind of a natural cul-de-sac with only one way out, but they also had no guards posted, and the rifles were stacked up and out of reach, all nice and neat-like. Hell, some of the troops even had their boots off, straight chilling. They had the Modoc outnumbered two to one, but it didn't matter. Once Scarface Charlie and his 30 opened up fire and began raining down hell on the soldiers, the base of San Butte was transformed into a slaughterhouse. Out of the 67 troops that dismounted for lunch, only 42 made it out alive. And damn few of them without getting wounded. And here's the crazy part. It could have been much, much worse. Every man one of them would have likely been rubbed out had Scarface Charlie not shown a little bit of mercy. For some unknown reason, maybe he was running low on ammo, I don't know. But Charlie broke off the attack at about 3 o'clock that afternoon. Calling down to the desperate and doomed men, quote, all you fellers that ain't dead better go on home. We don't want to kill all of you in one day. And true to his word, no more shots were fired. Much like what followed the killing of General Canby, relief was slow in coming. At first, Colonel Gillum sent absolutely nobody, an action that was the final nail in the coffin of this particular assignment and got him relieved of duty. And the rescue party that finally did come got lost that night, leaving the massacre survivors to just lay bleeding on the ground for hours. Once located, the wounded men had to be packed out on stretchers during a driving rain that soon turned to snow. By this point, they're on their second night following the attack. Author Keith Murray wrote, quote, By dawn, the weary column found itself closer to the old stronghold than to Gillum's camp, so they walked towards that for shelter. The men were bone-weary and covered with a two-day's growth of whiskers, which were whitened by the snow. Since they had not taken enough warm clothes when they started, they were now thoroughly chilled. Their food and water had been inadequate for a 36-hour expedition, and much of what they had taken out had been given to the wounded. An army went into the lava beds. A motley crew of straggling, disorganized, and exhausted men returned. End quote. It's interesting that he mentions water, as unbeknownst to the army, the Modoc were still struggling to stay hydrated. They were moving from camp to camp, cave to cave, and surviving off ice they chopped from lava tubes. Formations that would take months or in some cases years to accumulate, but a very short time to be melted and drank by over 150 thirsty Modoc men, women, and children. They would spend three days in Jack's Ice Cave, which I believe you can still visit. Then they hit up the Caldwell Ice Cave, a few miles to the south. Following this, sometime around May 8th, they camped out on a dry lake bed, somewhere south of Scorpion Point, where they dug water out of the ground by hand. This shit is crazy, man. It's like they were all playing a big, deadly game of naked and afraid, only with guns. And if you slow down, your kids die. Now, at this point, Colonel Gillum was out, succeeded by General Jefferson Davis, Canby's replacement who also took charge of the army in the field. And yeah, his name was Jefferson Davis. Just not that Jefferson Davis. Not that he was any less of a controversial figure. 
He shot and killed fellow Union General William Bull Nelson back in 1862 after they got into a heated argument. At one point, Nelvis told Davis to go away, you damn puppy. And Davis responded by tossing a crumpled up piece of paper in Nelson's face. This prompted Nelson to slap the ever-loving dog shit out of Davis, who immediately took hold of a revolver and put a round into Bull's chest. Although briefly placed into custody, General Jefferson would never face trial, much less get punished. Matter of fact, he ended up getting promoted to Major General and marched to the sea with Sherman in 1864. A march that led to even more controversy. At one point, Jefferson found he and his troops encumbered with hundreds of slaves, hoping to gain their freedom. Looking to separate himself from this burden, he had his men destroy a bridge after they crossed it, effectively stranding the freedom seekers on the other side. And sure enough, Johnny Reb soon showed up and began slaughtering them. Many of those who tried to find refuge in the water would drown. Jefferson would not be formally punished for this either, but he was banished for a while to Alaska before earning his way back to the mainland. And finally, he got called down to California to deal with these Modoc. Speaking of whom, despite their recent victory, were still being hunted, namely by other Native Americans from the Warm Springs Reservation. They had been out scouting and reported that they thought the Modoc were down in the southeastern portion of the lava beds, a theory that proved correct when three army supply wagons carrying barrels of whiskey were attacked and seized by the warriors. Three soldiers were wounded and the offending Modoc got drunker than Cooter Brown right there on the spot. Army whiskey may not quench your thirst, but I'm willing to bet all was right in their world for a few brief moments. In retaliation, a Captain James C. Hasbrook, commander of B Battery 4th Artillery, was sent in. He and his men, along with two troops of cavalry, set up camp on a nearby dry lake known as Sorass Lake. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it reads like Sorass. I also don't know how it got that name, but I think I'm going to err on the side of caution and not drink any water from Sorass Lake anytime soon. Anyway, the Army's hunch was correct and the Modoc were still very close by some of them doubtless nursing some serious hangovers, and when dawn came, the Modoc launched their attack. Now, full disclosure, I don't know how many men were under Captain Hasbrook, nor do I know how many warriors took part in this attack. Only that Captain Jack himself led the raid. Two soldiers fell dead instantly, with another three or four wounded. As men began running in panic, three more fell, one of which was mortally wounded. Oh boy, here we go. Another repeat of that Thomas Massacre. Captain Jack was even seen on a ridge looking all spooky in the half-light, wearing the dead General Canby's uniform as he orchestrated this would-be slaughter. Fortunately for these soldiers, the NCOs took over. One in particular, rallying the troops and bellowing out a, God damn it, let's charge! First Sergeant Thomas Kelly led his boys into the thick of it, bringing the fight to the Modoc. And of course his name was Thomas Kelly, right? Nice strong Irish name. And if the movies have taught me anything, it's that you can't have an old West Army unit without an old grizzled Irish immigrant first sergeant. I like to think that Sergeant Kelly could string together a sequence of profanity that'd make the devil blush. I'll drink every soldier in his command and outfight most men half his age. The kind of guy who could share some folksy Irish wisdom and belt out a beautiful acapella version of Danny Boy or the Fields of Atherai, and then look you dead in the eye and gut you like a fish. Anyway... Sure enough, this countercharge threw the Modoc off their game and caused them to retreat. And although the soldiers lost five dead and eight wounded, they had finally succeeded in beating the Modoc in a stand-up fight. They now knew it could be done at least. You know, no longer was the opposition unbeatable. The opposite was true for the Modoc. 
As they were trying to get away from the charging soldiers, they ran smack dab into them warm spring scouts, leading to even more fierce fighting. By the way, last episode, I stupidly said that these scouts were from the Warm Springs Reservation in central Washington state. I meant to say Oregon, about 60, 70 miles north of present-day Bend, Oregon. So this whole battle was an awful defeat from the Modoc for a few different reasons. They'd come out on top in nearly every fight, and with each new victory, they were able to resupply themselves with ammo from the dead or retreating soldiers, not to mention other supplies. Not only was that denied them here at the Battle of Dry Lake, but they also lost 24 horses in their rush to get away. 24 steeds that they couldn't really afford to lose. But worse than all of that was the death of Ellen's man George. Considered by some to be one of the chief strategists of the Modoc, George was fatally wounded and would die later that day, hastening the end of the war more than any other single event. Keep in mind that George was one of them Hot Creek Modoc, and evidently he and Captain Jack never really saw eye to eye. Think back to the very beginning, before this war even started. How some Modoc, even in Jack's band, wanted to go on the warpath, and how he was barely able to restrain them. And then throughout those months of peace talks, how certain factions within the stronghold opposed surrender. How they mocked and threatened Captain Jack. All the discord and jealousy as various warriors vied for control, one of the most vocal of the time being curly-headed doctor. And Ellen's man George backed the shaman 100%. With George's death, all of this animosity finally came to a head. Many of the warriors, the Hot Creek outfit along with Hooker Jim, blamed Jack, accusing him of purposely ordering Ellen's man into the thickest of the fighting, hoping he'd get killed. As such, some of those pushing the hardest for war would now abandon Jack. Steamboat Frank, Bogus Charlie, Shack Nasty Jim, and of course that scoundrel Hooker Jim. They, along with about 10 of the Hot Creek Modoc, took their families and simply left, moving quickly and silently until they were about 40 miles away, completely out of the war zone, where they then just kind of hunkered down, at least temporarily. Now I know that I have the benefit of looking back at all this, from the comfort of my air-conditioned home, with my clean clothes and clean drinking water and a fridge full of food, with my 21st century mindset. I'm also aware that we'll never know the full story when it comes to all of these events. But still, I gotta say, I'm not much of a fan of this Hooker Jim guy. Seems like going to war was all fine and good when they were winning, but now that it's getting down to the nut cutting, he's essentially just taking his ball and going home. Meanwhile, Jack and the remaining Modoc, the fighting force now of just an estimated 30 men, were on the move, eventually setting up camp on Big Sand Butte, where the army found them. This was about 10 days after their defeat there at Soras Lake. Still, though, both sides were hesitant to kick off the fight. Jack, of course, was lacking both manpower and ammunition. Adding to his troubles, where he and his people were camped on the top of that butte, there was neither food nor water. Like the poet once said, he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day. I'm not sure if Captain Jack was familiar with Oliver Goldsmith, but he certainly knew the sentiment. As the military worked to surround him, the Modocs slipped away once again, and once again, the chase was on. A few days later, Hasbrook and his men strike a fresh trail and are fired upon. Thinking that this was Jack's Modoc, he orders pursuit, quickly capturing ten women and children. Turns out this was part of Hooker Jim's band. He had gotten nosy and come down from his hidey hole to see what was going on, and he got got. The women were brought in for interrogations, and then a couple of them were sent back to Jim to tell him to come on in and surrender. 
Like before, this was to be an unconditional surrender, but the army made it clear that they would treat him and his warriors as prisoners of war. In other words, Jim wouldn't be immediately executed. Hooker sent word back that he'd only surrender if John Fairchild were present to protect him. This was done. Fairchild arrived and the warriors all surrendered. All of them except for that dang old Hooker Jim. Per Keith A. Murray in the Modocs and their war, quote, The Modocs were destitute. Their horses were sorry-looking nags, skinny and lame. The men were wearing portions of United States Army uniforms taken from the bodies of the dead in the months before. The women were still wearing clothing taken from the homes of settlers the previous November, and these clothes were badly faded and worn, with crude patches holding them together. Both the men and women had daubed their faces with pitch as a sign of mourning for their defeat. End quote. Shack Nasty Jim, Steamboat Frank, and Curly-Headed Doctor were among them surrendering. But like I said, not Hooker Jim, at least not at first. Soon enough, though, he came running into camp, barreling his way into General Jefferson's tent, prostrating himself before the officer. It turns out that the brave Hooker Jim was hiding nearby, watching his fellow Modoc surrender. Once he realized that nobody was being massacred, he finally came in, running at full speed past the soldiers, and throwing himself at the mercy of Jefferson. General Davis, not General Jefferson. I don't know why I keep calling him General Jefferson. Jefferson was his first name. His pleas and supplications were effective. So ready to end the hostilities was General Davis that he awarded amnesty for Hooker Jim, along with bogus Charlie, Steamboat Frank, and Shack Nasty Jim. They'd be pardoned for the murder of the settlers way back when and not be held accountable for the deaths of Canby and Thomas. All they had to do was help him capture Captain Jack a bargain that these Modoc jumped at. We're at the end of May 1873 now. Captain Jack is still free with 30-some-odd warriors and their families. Maybe. The numbers differ depending on what source you read. You know, was it 32 warriors or 37? It's also important to note that they weren't all bunched up together in one group all of the time. Often they were hiding out separately in small family groups. Nevertheless, Hooker Jim and them other three had a pretty good idea where to look. The army sent them out, and in no time flat, they show up at Jack's newest camp, where, surprise, surprise, they are not welcomed with open arms. Captain Jack is openly hostile, especially when these four former allies admit that they're now working with the military and that they're there to convince him to surrender. Were these not the same belligerents who wouldn't let him lay down his arms months earlier? The same bloodthirsty fools who draped him in women's clothing and even threatened him with death if he surrendered there at the stronghold? Jack strongly rebuked Hooker Jim and the others, saying that he'd now never surrender, and if he was to die, he'd do so with a rifle in his hand, as opposed to a noose around his neck. In spite of all this, there was dissent among his ranks. Scarface Charlie listened intently and spent time talking with the four spies. He and Jack had always been friends, but the still-defiant Modoc were tired, including Charlie. He was tired of running, always being half-assed starved, tired of seeing his women and children going to bed with empty bellies, tired of fighting. When Hooker Jim returned to his new handlers, he reported that there were only 24 warriors with Jack and that many of them now had wavering loyalty to their leader. With this new intel, the army decided to strike while the iron was hot. They moved forward, advancing on the camp until they were quickly met by Boston Charlie, who is more than ready to surrender at this point. He even asked the soldiers why they brought so many people before laying down his rifle and shaking hands all around. Others would then start trickling in, some willfully and some being rounded up in groups of ones and twos. 
But not Jack. He's still up there and he's still armed. Finally, a Dr. Cabanus was brought in to speak with him. At a distance, of course. Cabanus was a military surgeon. I believe the same one who treated Meacham after he was wounded. He was with General Canby and Gillum during some of the peace talks and he and Jack had previously met. At present, the MODOK leader wanted to know what would happen if he surrendered. Cabanus said that he wasn't authorized to say. Jack then complained that he and his people had no food or clothing, which the doctor immediately sent for. He and another MODOK delivered and distributed them among Captain Jack's people. And Cabanus even spent the night there in camp. But when he awoke, Jack was gone, using the excuse that he was looking for a better camp, when in fact, he couldn't bear watching his fellow warriors surrender. The end was inevitable at this point, though. A detachment of troops was hot on Jack's trail, and they found him on Willow Creek on the 4th of June. 1873. Or at least they found his half-brother, Humpy Joe, thus named due to having a hunchback. Humpy was told that they were surrounded and to go fetch Jack. He leaves to do so, and then nothing. Finally, just as the army is thinking they gotta go in there and get Jack out, he emerges, looking exhausted yet still armed, asking for John Fairchild. The officer in charge, Major Trimble, told him the Fairchild was not present, and Jack simply handed over his rifle stating that his legs gave out. With Jack and Humpy were two other Modoc warriors along with their women and children, and the war was officially over. Interesting to note that although the numbers and the names varied, not all of the Modocs surrendered, nor were they all rounded up. A few did manage to slip through the cracks, but since they weren't leaders or anything like that, they were not pursued. One of these was Miller's Charlie, the one who shot Lieutenant Sherwood in the back right before General Canby was murdered. Not only would Charlie never face trial, but he would live another 38 years. All the other main culprits were now in military custody, though. Captain Jack, the Shack Nasty Brothers, Curly-Headed Doctor, Boston Charlie, Scarface Charlie, Steamboat, Hooker Jim, everybody. Prisoners of war. All that was left now was the dulling out of justice, or at least what amounted to justice. Jack was shackled and, along with the other Modoc, transferred up to Fort Klamath, as state and federal authorities began arguing over what to do with them. In the end, it was agreed that only six Modoc would be tried for war crimes. Captain Jack, of course, along with Boston Charlie, John Schconchen, Slowlux, Barncho, and Black Jim. Now, I know a lot of these names can be confusing as to who did what, so here's just a little refresher. Boston Charlie, roughly 19, 20 years old, was part of Hooker Jim's war party that killed those settlers around Thule Lake. He was also present when General Canby was murdered and personally helped kill Reverend Thomas. Schconchen John was quite a bit older. I'd say just by judging his photo, at a minimum he was in his 40s, probably in his 50s. But he was also present at the murder at the peace tent, and it was he who fired all those rounds into Meacham. Then you got Slow Lux and Barncho, or Brancho, depending on the source. These two guys were pretty young, but they're the ones who were hiding and jumped up with rifles in their hands at the onslaught of Canby's murder. Captain Jack, you already know, and finally, we've got Black Jim. I don't think I've mentioned Black Jim before. He's kind of slipped through the cracks somehow in this entire series, but he was one of Captain Jack's people. He was there at the fight at Lost River, and he was there when Canby was killed. I don't know why I failed to mention his name on the last episode. Just to kind of sort of get a better idea of these men and their standing among the tribe, at one point during the trial, the accused were described in terms of military rank. Obviously, Jack was in charge, but Schconchen was equated to a sergeant. Black Jim, a 
quote-unquote watchman, not sure what that means, Boston, just a high private, and Slow Lux and Barnchill were described as, quote, not anything, <laughs> end quote. As for the trial itself, it was a bit of a farce. It was a foregone conclusion that the men would hang, they just had to get this formality out of the way. You don't just kill a general and get away with it, right? The accused would arrive at Fort Klamath on July 4th, 1873, and four days later, on the 8th, all six were found guilty and sentenced to hang. And no matter what your opinion may be as to whether or not these Modoc deserved their fate, there's no denying that if this trial occurred today, it would be extremely illegal. The jury was made up of military officials, some of which had fought against Jack and the others. Undoubtedly, they knew some of the fallen soldiers. The Modoc were given no legal counsel, and half of them, including Jack, couldn't even speak English. Their translators, Frank Riddle and his wife Toby, would also testify on behalf of the government. That said, there were calls for leniency. Even from the War Department, believe it or not, who asked that the death sentences of Barnshow and Slowlux be commuted. I guess the argument here was that they were just common foot soldiers whose worst crime was knocking down Toby Riddle during the killing of Canby and the Reverend. It was noted that neither one of these young men took any particular interest in the trial and that they likely had no real idea of what was occurring. This clemency was granted. Both men would be spared from execution but would still do hard time on the rock, Alcatraz. Now, during the trial, Captain Jack was permitted to speak, and he did speak his mind, placing all the blame on others, especially Hooker Jim. Quote, I never told Hooker Jim and his party to murder any of them settlers. End quote. He would also go on to implicate Jim and the others as the masterminds behind Camby's death. In short, Jack was saying that none of this was his fault, and I think he was justifiably very frustrated at the irony of the whole process. He had wanted to surrender. He had not taken part in the killing of any of those settlers. Time and time again, it was Hooker Jim who was one of the loudest supporters of violence. And yet he went free as Jack sat there arguing for his life in a room full of white men. All for naught. The execution was set for October 3rd, 1873. And the condemned watched from their cells as a scaffold was built. Watched the soldiers dig six graves. And they dug six graves because none of them knew that Slowlux and Barnco had been given leniency, including Slowlux and Barncho. Still, though, kind of messed up to watch your own grave being dug. I can only imagine that, that would work a number on your brain. On the day of the execution, the Modoc listened politely as a priest came to visit. They were then all given a final chance to speak, with Jack once again placing the blame on the others, particularly Bogus, Shack Nasty Jim, Hooker Jim, and Steamboat Frank. Next up, Slow Lux and Barncho spoke, both saying that they were 100% innocent, which was not entirely the truth, but I get it. Black Jim then used this opportunity to ask for a pardon, saying that he'd be a good chief of the Modoc if only the whites would let him go. And then Boston Charlie chimed in, allegedly saying, quote, When I look on both sides of me, I think of these other men as women. I do not fear death. I think I am the only man in the room. I fought in the front ranks with Shack Nasty, Steamboat, Bogus, and Hooker. I am altogether a man and not half a woman. End quote. When asked why he helped kill Canby, Boston explained that it was because the Modoc constantly feared treachery and that they figured that if they killed the leaders, the rest of the whites would leave. And he did back up Jack's claims by admitting it was the youngsters who forced the issue and prevented Captain Jack from stopping the murders. 
As for Sconch and John, he blamed the whole bloody war on the superintendent of Indian affairs, Odenil. Remember him? And he finished by saying that he, Sconchin, was old and just to let him die. It was finally announced that Slowlux and Barnshow would not be executed, that they'd instead spend the rest of their lives at Alcatraz. With this, Jack, Black Jim, Sconchin, and Boston were led to the gallows. Another prayer and then the axe fell, cutting the ropes and plunging all four to their deaths. Captain Jack and Black Jim appeared to die instantly while Sconchin and Boston both kicked for a few moments. By 10.28 a.m., the men were pronounced dead, cut down, and placed in coffins. No word on what Hooker Jim was up to at this time. That might be the most frustrating part of this whole story. Once again, I know, maybe we don't have all the details, but just judging by the available information, it seems to me like he was mostly to blame for the whole dang war, at least insofar as the Modoc were to be blamed. Plenty of blame to be found on all sides, really. But Hooker Jim led the party that went murdering directly after the Battle of Lost River. He opposed surrendering in the stronghold. He helped to pressure Jack into murdering Canby. And yet he goes free while Jack is executed. By the way, I'm not saying that I think Jack is innocent. He was a grown man and nobody forced him to pull that trigger. He's 110% responsible for killing General Canby. I just don't think things would have escalated to that point had it not been for old Hooker Jim. Never did find out why he went by Hooker Jim, by the way. As for the rest of the Modocs, some were permitted to return to the Yannex or Yannex reservation. I'm probably flubbing that pronunciation, which was a uh, sub-agency of the Klamath reservation, where their fellow tribesmen who hadn't taken part in the war were living. The others, considered to be the most belligerent, were exiled to Indian territory. Them and their families. All total, it was 39 men, 54 women, and 60 children who were placed on the Quapaw Agency in what's now the northeast corner of Oklahoma. Ugh, gross. And Scarface Charlie was now their leader, at just 22 years of age, by the way. 22. Bet you didn't know that. Uh, I didn't either until very recently. But just Google some of the people I've been talking about. It's astonishing how young some of them look. Hooker Jim, in particular, appears to still be in his teens, although I think he was probably like 23 or so by the end of the war. Captain Jack was only 35 at the time of his death, and judging by a picture of the holy man curly-headed doctor, he was about the same age. The only one of them that looks like they're a little bit older was Sconch and John. No telling how young Slowlux and Barncho were, but I highly doubt they were older than 16, 17. Around 50 extremely young men defied the U.S. Army for nearly a year, outwitting and outfighting them on more than one occasion, killing a general in the process. The only general, by the way, that was ever killed during the so-called Indian Wars. Check me on that, but I believe it is the truth. The MODOK killed dozens of soldiers and volunteers during this war and cost the U.S. government $420,000, the equivalent of $10 million in today's money. And don't worry, I used an inflation calculator on that one, not my own very limited math skills. Now, it's hard to determine just what became of many of these people we spoke of here in this series. Hooker Jim would not live long. Uh, he died just a few years after being sent to Oklahoma. Cause unknown, at least to me. Not sure what happened to Barncho or Bronco or whatever his name, but Slowlux was pardoned after just five years at Alcatraz. He changed his name to George Denny and lived until 1899. Curly-headed doctor died in 1890 
and Steamboat Frank became a minister. Scarface Charlie, as it turns out, was a gifted craftsman, spent his time designing and selling furniture, as well as a typeface that was used for the phonetic transcription of the Modoc language. Remember Miss Toby Riddle, the Modoc wife of Jack Riddle and the savior of Alfred Meacham? Well, she lived all the way to 1932, well into her 70s. Meacham would actually try to capitalize on his experience in the Modoc War and went on tour across the country, bringing Toby with him. He dubbed her the woman chief of the Modoc and gave her the fake name of Wynema and helped her to become semi-famous. A well-respected lady, Wynema would be granted a monthly pension of $25 for the rest of her life, largely due to Alfred Meacham's help. And while some do think Meacham was exploiting the Modoc to line his own pockets during these speaking tours, and while he did stretch the truth and embellish, he also, whatever his motives, did do a lot of good work on behalf of Native Americans. He even brought Chief Joseph to Washington, D.C. in 1879 to speak with Congress on behalf of the Nez Perce. By the year 1900, any Modoc who wished to return to the Klamath Reservation were allowed to do so, and many of them did. However, not all of them, and their descendants still live in Oklahoma today. Matter of fact, the headquarters for the entire Modoc Nation is in Miami, Oklahoma, and out of the 250 registered tribal members, 120 of them reside in Texas's neighbor to the north. Finally, I would like to recommend once again the book The Modocs and Their War by Keith A. Murray. There was so much that occurred during this conflict that I just could not fit it all into this series. So do yourself a favor and pick up this book if you get a chance. There's a lot of interesting details that I wasn't able to cover. But I will leave you with Mr. Murray's parting words, the last few paragraphs of his book. Just keep in mind that this was all written in the 1950s, but I think it bears repeating. Quote, Today, the land of burned-out fires as much as it always was. The lake has been drastically reduced in size, and the ancient bed is covered with grain fields, crisscrossed by highways and railroads. Yet, on a foggy morning, these fade away, and the gray mist gives the appearance of water, with all the ancient islands and landmarks clearly visible. The United States government has taken over most of the battle area as the lava bed's national monument. Trails take the visitor past the rocky fortifications and the stronghold, through the Thomas Wright Field, and by the Gillum Encampment. With only a few exceptions, these areas look almost as they did 80 years ago. In other, more inaccessible areas, the student of the war needs to be a rugged hiker in order to follow the routes of the Indians and their American antagonists. Outside the monument area and the lake basin, some of the old ranches are still farmed. Cattle and hay are still grown on the Fairchild Ranch, although the place has passed through several hands since it was first claimed and settled. Traces of the old immigrant roads may still be seen if one knows where to look. Most of the land in the monument that the whites wanted so badly is now remarkable only for its extreme desolation and solitude. In summer, a few head of deer and antelope graze through the lava fields. Rodents swarm through the rocks while their enemies, the hawks and the owls, Lies silently overhead. End quote. And that's about all I've got on Captain Jack and the Modoc War. Thanks for sticking with it. Hope you learned something new. Uh, I know I did. Before researching this, I only had a passing familiarity with Captain Jack, and this really helped me flesh it all out in my head. Thanks for all the support. Thanks for listening. And thank you for continuing to share the Wild West extravaganza. You make it all worth it. If you're interested, I do have a newsletter available now 
delivered for free straight to your inbox. I meant to mention it last episode, but daddy forgot. Once again, it's 100% free. Just sort of a companion for these episodes, as well as a way for me to reach out and contact you with any sort of updates or announcements. I've already uh, published a few editions that you can go back and read. The last one was just me sharing pictures of some of these MODOK warriors, just giving you an idea of how damn young they looked. And the one before that, I shared a short story about the notorious Indian killer Ben Wright and his well-deserved fate. So if you're interested, and I hope you are, you can sign up for this newsletter in several different ways. You can click on the link in this episode's show notes. You can go directly to the newsletter by visiting wildwestjosh.substack.com. Or you can simply go on over to my website, wildwestextra.com. Wait a few seconds for the pop-up window and enter your email address. And don't worry, I will not be spamming your inbox. I promise. This will be just a semi-regular, once a week, once every couple of weeks kind of thing. Speaking of spamming, if you have emailed me recently and I haven't gotten back to you, well... I just discovered for some reason that all the emails coming from my website are landing in my spam folder. I'm going through it all now, but I do, uh, on a pretty regular basis, just blindly empty that folder. So if I miss you, my bad. Please feel free to resend any emails as I think the issue is now resolved. Next episode is going to be a one-off, sort of a fun, spooky Halloween episode. And I mean fun as in morbidly curious. It most definitely was not fun for those involved. And then after that, we're going to delve into Frank Canton and the Johnson County War. Frank Canton, if you're not familiar, was born Josiah Horner. Got to start down in Texas as a young outlaw, doing outlaw activities with outlaw tendencies. Robbing banks, stealing cattle, all that fun stuff. He even got into a gunfight with some Buffalo soldiers. Josiah ended up getting arrested by the Texas Rangers, but escaped, fleeing to Nebraska and changing his name to Frank Canton. With this new identity, Canton would go on to become a highly respected lawman, first as a sheriff and then as a U.S. deputy marshal, operating in Wyoming before moving down to Indian Territory and working closely with guys like Bass Reeves, Bill Tillman, and Heck Thomas before ultimately finding himself up in Alaska. Canton was involved with the Johnson County War, which will give us a chance to revisit Nate Champion and his epic standoff. And if you've ever seen the movie The Virginian or read the novel, Frank Canton was supposed to be the direct inspiration behind it. As such, we'll take a look at how close the resemblance is between fact and fiction. And yes, it was eventually found out that Frank was indeed a wanted man in Texas. So please stay tuned. It's going to be a lot of fun digging into this guy's life. And that's it and that's that. Thanks again. Till next time, adios. Adios.